Before we get started with today's episode, I want to make sure and thank our sponsors, Alert Communications, Law Clerk, Clio, and Abby Connect. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both English and Spanish. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com forward slash LTN. So if I was starting today, as a new solo, I would be entrepreneurial aspect of the way they're practicing by becoming a leader and they've done it to help young lawyers starting a small what it means to be fulfilled. Make it easy to work with your clients. New approach, new tools, new mindset, new solo. And it's making that leap, making that leap, making that leap. All right, everyone, it's time for another episode of New Solo. And with me today is a, a rock star of a woman. Kim Felton, who is, Kim, I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to call you a young attorney if that's okay. Sure. (laughs) Who's a youngish attorney that went through law school and had her trials and tribulations, found out she was going to become a mother during law school, had her trials and tribulations, got out of law school, had some trials and tribulations, and then just decided there had to be a better way, which I'm pulling that quote from uh, one of Kim's articles that I read about finding balance in her life, creating a better law practice, and then finding ways to actually help other attorneys in as much as she helps her immigration clients with their legal needs. So Kim, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on today. Give us real quick the tweet size summary of how Kim Felton got to Onward Immigration. Okay. First, thank you so much for having me on. I love this podcast, so I'm very happy and humbled to be here. Man, trying to sum this up is difficult, but I had my first son during law school. I found out I was going to have my second son right before I graduated law school. I needed a job, couldn't get a job because I was visibly pregnant, and I needed money. So I started doing contract work, which turned into figuring out how the legal profession is not efficient and how I cannot function in that environment. So taking control of that, I want to teach other lawyers how to be efficient, how to streamline their practice and how to figure out where they don't have to choose between their families and their careers. So I did innovation litigation to offer brief writing services so that I could take some of that workload and then offer consulting to teach them how to build that in themselves, which then showed me there was even more things about the legal practice I didn't like. And being, you know, the control freak that I am, I decided I was going to open my own practice and do things my way. And Kim, the article that I mentioned a better way, I saw it on Above the Law, but what was the full title for that so people can Google it? It was super long. Um, It is called A Better Way, How Motherhood Changed My Perspective of the Legal Field and What I'm Doing to Change It. So you went to law school. You were married and having babies during law school. (laughs) Yes. Like you didn't have enough going on. You decided, well, why not throw a little another challenge? We're going to have some babies. So I read a little bit on your your background, and I know that that was a struggle for you to... 
you know, not necessarily a bad struggle, but you took on a lot at that time. And I know that we have a lot of listeners that are either in law school or just out of law school and going through a lot. What kind of advice do you have? What kind of pearls can you share with going through that other than don't give up and go with your gut? Oh, you can't just not give up. You have to figure out a way not to give up. Uh So it happened like it, it, it all started coming together in the second part of my first year. First semester was like a hardcore in the books, head down, nothing else mattered. And it was not good for my mental health. And so it was a nice breath of fresh air to be able to snap out of that and come back to something in real life. I found out I was having my oldest son in April of 2016. After the initial excitement, the panic set in. Like, oh my God, I'm going to have an infant. How am I going to do this? And there wasn't that many resources to find about moms who had done this. So I was left scrambling. And I don't know how I did it. I recall days of sleeping on the floor in the lounge I used for nursing between my 30 minutes between classes. The hard, cold floor. And (laughs) I, I actually went back to school when my son was only three weeks old. And my husband was in the military at the time, and he had to go away for training. So he left when the baby was eight weeks old, or six weeks old, until mid-March. So it was just me. Wow. Yeah. And at the time, I had just gotten into immigration law, and that was when all the immigration changes started, January 2017. It was chaotic. To say the least. Yeah. So (laughs) advice-wise, I... Maybe plan it better, but you can't always. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just, it's really hard to condense it into words how hard it was. But at the same time, coming away, it conditioned me for mm. beyond law school. And it also grounded me in knowing that it's not just about grades. It's not just about law review. There's other people on the other side of this that need help. So I think focusing on the ultimate end goal is a good way to get through. That's great. And so what kind of things do you offer to in support? What sort of, do you do talks? Do you do seminars? Do you write blog posts? I mean, tell us where to go look for this kind of information if we're in a situation like you were in and looking for that sort of help. I would totally love to do talks and seminars. Oh my gosh, invite me. I will so do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, on my personal Facebook and my Instagram, I am very candidly honest about my trials and tribulations of when I failed the bar exam I was out front about it I was like you know I was only a couple points away I didn't make it but you know what I'm gonna own that because you don't ever hear about it and so it was more about just telling my personal story as it was happening and then I started writing articles like the above the law article that um, we had discussed before called a better way how pregnancy changed my outlook on the legal profession Mm. and what I'm doing about it. Because my post-law school experience was not as generous as my law school experience. Tell us about that. What do you mean? It was really difficult. I, on top of all of the things I was doing, I decided I was going to do something that they had in New York called the Pro Bono Scholar Program. And I was going to take the bar early before graduating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a great idea. (laughs) Because I can do all of the things. So I had a one-year-old trying to study for the bar, still in school, and I took the bar in February, and I was on top of the world, you know, thinking, like, this is it. I'm going to get sworn in after I graduate. This is going to be amazing. I found out a month later that I was pregnant with my second child. Very big surprise. So I was a bit shell-shocked. 
<laughs> um, and then I got the bar results very shortly after that. And I was crushed. So oh. it was a matter of, it became an issue of not only figuring out my next move with the bar, but finding employment while I have a growing belly. That was where I was the most naive. I really believed that my credentials would outshine my appearance. And they were until I was there in person. Mm-hmm. And then interviewers, their eyes would fall to my stomach. Suddenly they were going in a different direction or they'd get back to me. They never got back to me. That sucks. When I was 30 weeks pregnant, I found a position at a local family law firm. And at first it seemed promising. You know, it wasn't quite the area I wanted to be in, but it was good experience. And then after I returned from having my second child, it was not a good experience. It was really hostile and it was unwelcoming. And I only lasted a few more weeks because come to find out the week I returned from maternity leave, they had started advertising for my position behind my back. Didn't find out until I was unceremoniously dismissed on a Friday afternoon. And an hour later, I'm looking for a job and I see my position posted that week. Oh my gosh. I was crushed and I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, financially, that's devastating. Two kids, my husband was working, but it wasn't enough to carry everything. And that is how I started doing services for other attorneys to get by. Smart. It was innovation out of necessity. I think things are born from that. Well, here's what I appreciate. Well, first of all, here's what I don't appreciate. The jerks that did that to you. All woman um, firm. Yeah. And I was going to say it doesn't have to necessarily, you know, it's so funny. I was just talking to a woman this morning and she said to me, I said, oh, I started my career at such and such law firm 20 years ago. She said, oh, do you know so-and-so, a friend of hers, a woman? And she said this person's name. And I said, yeah, I do. And I did not cringe when you brought her name to from the back of my mind to the front, because when I was at that law firm, my worst experience in interpersonal relationships was with women. They were so mean to me. And, you know, I was 20 something years old. I just wanted to help. I was energetic. I, you know, I knew something they didn't know about computers. And at this particular firm, which was very toxic, and um, not only did I suffer a little bit, and not really, I mean, they were just mean girls, big deal. But I watched these associates just get pushed and crushed. And um, the expectations set upon them were just, they were terrible. And um, I was in my 20s and I was young and dumb. And I thought, ooh, who would want to be a lawyer under these circumstances? Now, I went to a different firm later and it was very different. So there's definitely something to be said about the culture in the law firm. And since then, I've been in hundreds of firms where, you know, the experience runs the gamut. But anyway, long story short, it's not always the men that do that to women. And I think that's really disheartening. I mean, it's disheartening as it is, but this makes it even worse. Yeah, I agree. I had expected more support because they, most of them had children. And then, like you were saying, the expectations that were set up were not realistic. I was getting told to put my six-week-old to bed and drive back to the firm. I was more than willing to sit and work at my kitchen table. I never shied away from that. But I had to stop nursing because I didn't have enough time to pump and I was losing my supply. And, you know, it, it was the lack of support and the fact that this is normalized that really bothered me. That's really hard. And it's really hard to live through that when you know you can do something about it. So... You did something about it. I did. So I discovered, you know, that there was ways to do contract work for other attorneys. And it wasn't even something that I had considered as an avenue before. But 
I had heard other attorneys looking for brief writers. So I started doing that and I started getting myself on Facebook groups and, you know, passing my information around and using lawclerk.legal. And, you know, it was a great way for me to get some really in-depth writing experience too and not have the pressure of dealing with the caseload. That's really great. And um, for our listeners, in case you haven't heard, lawclerk.legal is one of our sponsors. I've had Greg on this podcast at least once, possibly twice. So go back and find those episodes with Law Clerk and see how they work. You're the probably fourth or fifth guest that I can even remember who has said Law Clerk has been very helpful to them in either getting started, getting experience, or a supplemental income when they were launching their solo practice. So I I love that you are also part of that band of Mary users who um, had a good experience with that and and found it it was just a good resource. Okay, so you started with lawclerk.legal and then... That still wasn't enough for you. No, it wasn't. Um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so here I am raising babies, a house, animals, a husband and bringing in brief work. And then I started to get this itch because I didn't like the way people ran their cases. So Mm. I started that's how I accidentally stumbled into legal tech, because I knew that there had to be a more efficient way to get this stuff done. Awesome. And they didn't teach you in law school. Exactly. They don't teach you in law school. You know, the these are essential skills that are coming to be necessary in the modern law practice. But we're still practicing in the 19th century in some places. So I got this itch And I didn't like the way cases were handled. So I started diving in and learning about startups and all of these different project management softwares. And it just kind of grew from there. So then I started offering assistance with project management and streamlining. I was like, you know, if I'm setting this up for other people, I should be setting this up for myself too. So I set a goal and between, I I set the goal actually long before COVID I wanted a virtual practice because I never wanted to have to choose between my children and my job Mm -hmm. again. Awesome. Well, I was ahead of the curve because then COVID hit and everything went virtual. I thought that was pretty awesome, except (laughs) there was a lot of bumps in the road trying to figure out other logistics to it, like mail and all of these things that didn't occur to me at the time. So I dove in even further and started looking into different services and other types of software offered. And I just saw this entire universe of options, not only just with software and technology, but ways to practice law. So I set the goal. It was in March 2020. I was going to open up a firm and have it ready to go by October. And I did. Why did you, and I meant to ask you this earlier, so sorry to go backwards. Why did you choose immigration law? Oh, okay. So I'll try to make this one quick. Because I had found out that I was pregnant in my first year of law school, I had to have this purpose to continue because I was about to become a mom and that was supposed to be a big part of my life. So I had gone into law school years thinking I was going to be a prosecutor. I mean, I'm talking like since I was 13 years old, this was the plan. And I used to have names of law schools pinned up on my bedroom wall. I was a very nerdy teenager with a big (laughs) ambition. So I start interning at the DA's office. Be still my heart. Oh my gosh, I can't stand it. Oh, this is not for me. I felt awful being in the courtroom, seeing people in shackles, feeling like I was contributing to mass incarceration. The systemic racism that I witnessed was mind blowing, stuff that I didn't anticipate. And so I was like, oh no, I don't know what I'm going to do now. 
<sighs> I got to figure this out because I got a baby coming and law school is really expensive. So I spoke with a mentor who mentioned a local nonprofit and they have a fellow, two fellowships there. And the only way to get into it is through two of the school's legal clinics, which was the domestic violence clinic and the immigration law clinic. I am a domestic violence survivor, so that was a bit triggering to me, and I kind of shied away from it. And then I was like, oh, immigration sounds happy. I want to know, this was August 2016. I was very naive, and I reached out to the professor of the clinic to get in touch with her about the spring semester. Well, it just so happened that right then a spot had opened up because somebody had dropped the class. So she said, it's yours if you want it. And... I was sworn in to the clinic with my hand on my belly and my right hand in the air three weeks later. Oh, my gosh. I fell in love. Oh. I absolutely fell in love. I was working on a special immigrant juvenile status case for a kid that came from Guatemala. And, you know, like he was 15. And just hearing the things, he didn't have a mailing address. There's no running water. There's no electricity. I just, it, it took my heart. And then there was a bond hearing. Um, I actually ended up on bed rest right in the very beginning of November. I still continued my classes on the computer and I participated through Skype. And I worked on a bond hearing with my partner that was done like while I was on bed rest. And I just couldn't get enough of it. I, you know, I, I don't know what it was about that particular area of law, but then when the election happened, I knew what that meant for immigration and it broke my heart. I had to stop watching the election because it was causing me to have contractions. <laughs> I'm oh not even God. kidding. I know I that think I understand. It's, it's, you know, it's a little extreme, but like the stress I was feeling, it wasn't even about me. It was a thinking about my clients and what they were going to endure. And so I hadn't signed up for the clinic for the following semester. I had been invited back to do the second part, which is invitation only, but I decided not to because I had a new baby and I was going to do an immigration law class instead so I could learn, but I still couldn't get enough. So, you know, we had a capital region immigration coalition meeting. I was pumping as I was driving. I mean, like I said, my, my son was only a couple weeks old. And this was when the Muslim ban was coming down and all of these things were happening. So I knew that I was not going to take much time off. And I ended up applying for the immigration fellowship at that nonprofit. And in February, they told me it was mine. I worked there that entire summer. I, I stayed there. I went back to the immigration clinic. And by the time I graduated, I had over 1,300 hours of pro bono service. That's amazing. And that pro bono service that you love. Yes. What really got me was, it was my asylum case that I spent so much time on. Yeah. Before we continue our conversation, let's hear how lawyers industry-wide are adopting technology in this next segment of Clio's Legal Trends Report Minute. Did you know that three out of four lawyers are meeting with clients virtually, storing firm data in the cloud, accepting payments online, and nearly two-thirds of law firms support electronic document sharing and e-signatures? I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer-in-residence at Clio. Beyond the necessity of these technologies in the past year, their value in saving lawyers time and money while also increasing client satisfaction cannot be understated. For the first time, we've seen lawyers adopt new technologies to a degree that we've never seen before in the history of legal practice. What was once a competitive edge has now become a baseline in the legal profession, 
and you do not want to be left behind. To learn more about these technologies for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking to Kim Felton, who, uh, in our first segment, we uh, sort of rolled through her journey of going through law school, pregnant, and then trying to work and get a job, being pregnant. And then she got the entrepreneurial itch, which I love that you got. A lot of lawyers don't get the entrepreneurial itch, and that's okay, right, if you don't, because then there are lawyers like you that get it and then do something about it that helps other lawyers. So you were, you were le- we left off where you were discovering legal technology and the efficiencies that technology, and specifically legal technology, might bring to a practice, and you saw a better way. You saw a better way to run your own life and then your practice, and is this where innovation litigation comes in? So innovation litigation stemmed from the contract work I was doing. I wanted to do an LLC just to formalize it. But then, yes, that's where I started thinking about other things I could do with it because I still do contract work. I love brief writing. Some people think there's something wrong with me. I love doing a 25-page <laughs> asylum brief when it's not my case. But then I also was thinking about how other attorneys and other moms specifically can benefit from my experiences. So with innovation litigation, I'm starting to change it, not just to being about outsourcing contract work, but about bringing me in to revamp the system and figure out how they can have, you know, everybody wants to have it all, but it's hard to have it all. So you have to be able to have it in good increments. So I want to be able to show them you can have the life you love and the job you love, and you don't have to sacrifice for it. I think that's really important because so many people do sacrifice one thing or another. It makes me think about this. um, I work for the San Diego County Bar too, and we have a little podcast about the San Diego legal community. And a few months ago did an episode on lawyers as parents. And it was, that was the whole crux of the conversation was I shouldn't have to choose between being a parent and being a lawyer. So innovation litigation is Two things then, let me make sure I understand. It's a platform for other attorneys who do immigration law to find contracted work. And it's a consulting service that you run to help other lawyers be more efficient, find life balance and use technology better. Yes, I can either offer them that balance by doing the brief work for them, or I can show them how to build that balance in themselves. That's amazing. Do you have more women or men as clients or about 50-50? Mostly women. Yeah. I could see where they would be drawn to you. I mean, you're real and you've gone through this and you're just saying, look, I can do this with you and you don't have to figure it all out by yourself. I mean, ultimately there are things we all have to figure out on our own, but it is really nice to get a little roadmap from somebody. So when somebody calls you up and says, help me, I'm drowning, where do you start? Well, what is the most urgent thing and what is the most important thing that we need to address first and foremost? What is an upcoming deadline? What is something you need to get out of the way right now? And then the rest of it, we can figure out step by step. It's, it's about prioritizing. It is. Are you finding that you get contacted by young attorneys, older attorneys, or again, across the gamut? It's across the gamut. I do find that there is a little bit more of a procrastination problem with older attorneys. Usually it's a last minute need and younger attorneys tend to get work to me or request work much further out from the deadline. So that was an interesting, that was an interesting dynamic. Any insight as to why? 
I think it comes back to the fact that we were never taught how to actually manage a caseload or projects in law school. That's not a skill that anybody's really taught. And you just, a lot of firms I'm finding are very disorganized and chaotic. And a lot of the younger lawyers are saying, I've had it. I can't work in an environment like this. A lot of firms are chaotic. I just was speaking to one of my clients today who has a firm that when I started helping them in 2019, they were 18 people. And today they're over 120. So not only just fast growth, but chaotic because of that fast growth. And they have a very fast moving practice. So they hired me to help them with some advanced support and training on Clio and NetDocs and stuff. And when I hung up the phone with my contact, which was the same person that had brought up the name of this nice attorney that I remembered from 20 years ago. I hung up and, and turned to Henry, my boyfriend, who's an attorney and does not run a chaotic practice because he's a solo and he manages it all and he's, you know, under control. I looked at him, I said, oh my God, that firm is an absolute mess. I mean, there's no order. There's um, little compliance. But, you know, that's that's a big firm. That's every big firm I have ever been to. And I think that's why when, if you are a young attorney or a solo, you have more peace of mind because you have more control. And I always encourage attorneys who are losing their minds because of the lack of organization and structure, like go out on your own. I mean, you're not going to fail. You're going to get business. You're going to do fine. And you won't be going crazy because you're running your practice under someone else's rules. It's something I've noticed, you know, com- like I said, coming out of law school, I was conditioned for harsher conditions, but I always had this high expectation for the legal profession and lawyers. And then seeing the chaos and the lack of structure and even accountability, it was really disheartening for me. And that was, you know, that's why I was like, I need to open my own firm because these immigration clients are not getting the service that they're paying mm-hmm. for. It was seeing unethical practices of other attorneys that really pushed me and feeling like I was powerless. The best I could do was work harder on the casework that was sent to me on an appeal than they did for the original petition. I wouldn't have to do this work if it was done right the first time, but I was able to help in some way. I think that because the law profession is stuck behind the times, This progress is so slow, and that is why lawyers have a bad rap. People are paying for the hourly, you know, the hourly model, but it's not efficient. It doesn't promote efficiency. It doesn't. I mean, that's the argument, right? Everybody wants to talk about whether the billable hour should live or die. And um, the fact that there is so much conversation about it really makes you question it. Talk to me real quick. Um, You know, project management is something that is, quote, new, to legal, as I often say, the idea of um, knowledge management training is is new in legal, I feel. Even 20 years later, I, I still have to say that because getting, at least from my perspective, legal technology trained is not something that's embedded into a culture, which is why people are inefficient. This is the way we've always done it. No, it doesn't do that. because. So anyway, long story short, I, I hear you. Talk to me about project management. That's something we don't talk enough about. What does that mean to you when it comes to managing a case? Because I think a lot of attorneys don't think about a case as a project, therefore don't apply principles of project management to doing that. So when somebody says to you, I think I need project management, but is that the same as case management? What do you say to them and how do you help them? Yeah, I mean, it is the same thing. The terms can be synonymous, but I think when you mention project management, it's more granular. 
it makes you, it forces you actually to do it step by step and to, to draw out the entire roadmap and see how you're going to get there. What things do we have to do along the way? When do they have to be done and why? And it's a really good way. I think it's a great way for younger attorneys to really get an understanding of a case too, by not just you know plugging everything into Clio and then referencing the notes, but all right, so we have this legal problem. When is the next filing deadline? What, does, what do we need to have done by then? What do I need to complete before the filing deadline so I'm not scrambling the night before to meet the filing deadline? So when it comes to project management, I'm not really partial to any kind of way or tool. I think as long as you can figure out something that works for you. I mean, I started off using sticky notes on my wall and doing a Kanban board. And I love that. I love the Kanban board because I can see everything that's going on in one place, but it doesn't necessarily work for other people. You know, it could be a spreadsheet. It could be a running list. But project management is something we do every single day and people don't realize it. They don't. I'll say real quick too, I'll add on this. I had a client who had me create some workflows for them in Clio. And what was great about the workflow when he gave it to me, he said, okay, here are the steps and here are the paralegal steps and then here's the attorney steps. But he had really taken the time to put into the workflow why, which is something you said, and I think that's important to address, which is a project management system can be used like a knowledge management system where you're teaching someone why something needs to get done so that the next time something similar comes up, they've got some information in their head that they can apply to either solve a problem or you know redo something the right way. So it was really neat how he had, it wasn't just this task is due in three days. This task is due in three days because if we don't contact this potential new client within three days, which that's way too long, but you know, we might lose the opportunity to service that client. So he actually had not just the sales and marketing part of the project, but also at some point he dug into the legal reasons. And this was a family law lawyer. The other thing I will add that I like about Clio, and I think it's any case management system that has calendaring rules in it, again, sort of teaching when you use their court rules, it tells you the action, it lays out the rule. It doesn't just say, okay, that's due six days before the deadline. It tells you why and what and how. And so I think that's another important part, like you said, of why. And I think that's a big piece that we miss out on, on training ourselves and attorneys or someone else. Absolutely. Why are we doing this? And I, I think that's a really good case for thinking about cases more like a project than just, you know, a linear process to get from cradle to grave. Yeah. I mean, you know, going back to the brief writing, that was just a small portion of an entire project. But for me, that was my project. That's my portion that I control. Somebody else isn't going to. So they need to know where I'm at at that time to be able to figure out where they're going next. And so by breaking it down and, you know, I'm a very visual person, so I need to be able to see things and the why part ingrains it. It makes you know and understand it. And then you take it more seriously and you're more accountable, I think. So tell me about your tech. So you mentioned Clio, but I know there's a product called After Pattern that is one of the main reasons you are here. So uh, what do you use in your practice? And let's start with your practice. So I am not a Clio user. I didn't find it to be necessary. I'm more of somebody that takes other tech and pieces it together to make it work for me. So, I mean, my essential pieces of tech are um, Zapier After Pattern, which is a database system that you can build apps in with um, logic and conditional logic. 
And I actually, I mean, it's so hard to sum up into a quick sentence what After Pattern does, but it will do document automation for you. It will do calendaring. It will do pretty much a lot of things that you can think for it to do. And if you can't figure it out how, the team is there for you. So it's a product that's very dynamic and has filled a lot of gaps in my practice. And that also got me wanting to learn how to create tech and coding. So that's another story, but <laughs> my that's that goes down. That's one of my essentials. And then having a client portal is also essential to me. So I'm using a product from a relatively new startup. It's called joinportal.com. The great thing about it is it is very customizable. And so I can add in modules or, you know, different areas for my clients to go depending on what kind of case they have. And that was an issue I have with a lot of case management systems is it's not heavily customizable by case type. Mm -hmm. It's more just practice area. So being able to customize my client portal is essential. A lot of my clients are not technologically fluent. So having something simple is well. And, you know, I, I work off of my Mac. That's my office. I love my Mac. I mean, I've stumbled into so many different products, but I still go back to using my Apple Notes, keeping a list on there, my Google Calendar, my email, Dropbox. But that's, you know, pretty much the most of it. And besides using tools like um, Zapier and Integromat to connect everything. Oh, I always hate to see an exciting series of new insights come to an end, but this is Melanie's last question for Starlet. And I want to make sure and thank Noda by M&T Bank for their support for this segment. To learn more, visit trustnoda.com. Terms and conditions may apply. My last question in light of the recent pandemic is, do you think remote proceedings will continue past COVID and why or why not? Remote proceedings are, are interesting. I had a, a three-day construction litigation dispute by arbitration over right before the Thanksgiving holiday and three days of Zoom and putting forth evidence via screen sharing was absolutely exhausting. However, you know, when we talk about, you know, basic motion practice, I hope that, that it stays so that we don't have to waste our time and our clients' money in driving to courthouses, waiting for docket calls, you know, something that can be done in five minutes now used to take three hours. And it, and it costs the client accordingly. I, I do hope one day to be back in the courtroom when it comes to evidentiary hearings and trials. Uh, and I think there's a lot... A lot lost um, in some cases without being in person. We had a, a case where the size of our client in relation to the size of the defendant mattered. And you, it's very hard to portray this different in, in size that could lead to our client being reasonably intimidated by and threatened by the um, opposing party when you're not in person. You know, and I've, I've played some some games with Zoom, asking somebody to walk away or show their gait, you know, sometimes this matters. And but it, it's just not as effective as being in person. And I also think it's probably difficult for the trier of fact, for the judge to really read people on Zoom sometimes. You know, there is something about eye contact and the way a person carries themselves that I think shows a lot about their character in, in a strange way. Body language and these, you know, subtle signals are important and that does not translate well on Zoom. But 
for all those other things, I hope any judges that are listening say, yes, let's keep them on Zoom and save everybody time and money. <laughs> so that was our last question in the second series of New Insights. Thank you so much, Melanie Commonson, for coming on New Solo. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. If you're a listener and you're interested in being one of our guests for New Insights, shoot us an email at newsolo at legaltalknetwork.com. Starlet, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Adriana, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you through this process, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. I love what you're doing to help young lawyers and all of us in the legal community. I think it's so important that we create authentic connections with one another and, and give people more resources as they grow their practice. Melanie, I wish you the very best, um, and please feel free to let me know if I can ever answer any of your questions offline again. Your legal work requires your full attention. So how can you answer all the phone calls from newer existing clients while juggling your caseload? Try Abby Connect, the friendly industry-trained live receptionist who are well-known for consistently providing high-quality customer service, lead intake, and appointment setting to firms just like yours. Visit abby.com forward slash LTN or call 833-ABBY-WOW for your free 14-day trial and $95 off your first bill. Law Clerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Whether you need a research memo or a complicated appellate brief, our network of freelance lawyers have every level of experience and expertise. Signing up is free and there are no monthly fees. Only pay the flat fee price you set. Use rebate code NEWSOLO to get a $100 Amazon gift card when you complete your next project. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. That's always a really good reminder for listeners is really want to find an area of law that you're passionate about and that you love. I think I got lucky because, you know, I just happened to stumble into that and yeah. it easily could have been something else. But I think that there should be more encouragement to branch out and try different areas as opposed to going on one track in law school. I, I agree with you. I agree. Well, I've always said, and I say it on this podcast all the time, the happiest lawyers I know are the ones who are practicing in an area of law that they support, that they love, that they're passionate about. So there's just, and you know, back to mental health and wellness and all the issues that we see that lawyers can have because it can be such a stressful job. I think that's just an important reminder. The statistics don't lie. Building out innovation litigation, I was looking at the burnout rate and how many women are exiting the profession before 10 years, and it all ties in together. Not knowing what your practice area you want, being in a toxic environment, having a family to depend on you, it, it's all connected. A lot of stress. You're a superwoman, like <laughs> so many other lawyers I know, and just, just humans in general. I know so many superhumans, and you definitely fall into that category. I appreciate that. I feel like I'm just stumbling through the day and figuring it out. So as an immigration lawyer, all right, so you've got after pattern, which I'm going to ask you a little bit more about now. And then you sort of use the basics on your computer, your mail and, and, and all that. Do you use any special immigration software? I use Camp Legal because what's great about it is it puts all of the information into the forms for you and it translates for the client automatically. There's a lot of great components to it. It just, I, I don't use it as much as the other pieces just because it doesn't integrate with everything as well yet. But, you know, it's it's a fairly new company. And is it specifically immigration? I haven't heard it of is. it. Is it specific? Okay. So good. People can go Google that if they're interested in finding some immigration software. I was going to say, you know, there's other, there's other options out there. There's something called DocketWise, but ultimately I got to put in the plug. 
if you take the time to build it out in after pattern, it can do what these systems are doing already. Okay, so let's talk about after pattern because I am sure that eyes started to go into the back of people's heads when they heard you say you built it yourself. Look, this is not for everybody, guys. <laughs> so listeners, don't go out there and think you have to build something. Um, there are turnkey solutions, and we know what all of those are. But if you have some desire and sophistication, and obviously there's a learning curve, and you mentioned very briefly, there's an advantage to building out a, a practice management system that works specifically for you. So talk a little bit about that and how After Pattern, if, if you haven't already covered it, has been able. How did you find a product like After Pattern? It's not legal, specific. It actually is. It's built it by is? lawyers for lawyers. It started as an access to justice project and it became much more. Awesome. Yeah. I've never heard of it. We're going to have to have the people on. You definitely should. Okay. Thomas Officer is fantastic. The product, I think I learned about it at the ABA Tech Show. And then I started looking into it more. And hmm. there is a learning curve, but it's completely doable. I mean, that was, yeah. it breaks down into blocks and components. And once you figure out the logic to it, it's very much like legal analysis. If this, then that. Or this plus this or this does not mean that. And so I started playing with it. And I, the first thing I built on it was a self-screening tool for clients to figure out if they were eligible for DACA. That way, they don't need to call me and waste their time to find out if they can get DACA. They can go plug in a couple of answers. And as soon as they don't meet the criteria, it will tell them and not waste their time. Or yours. Right. And then I was trying to figure out how to do a comprehensive intake to screen people for all different kinds of immigration relief because that's a problem I noticed. There's people eligible for things like a VAWA, U visa for victim, crime victims, and a T visa for trafficking victims. They're not screened as often as they should be. So I wanted to figure out how to get all of these questions in to figure out, can we do this for them? Is this possible for them? Is there this avenue? What strategy can we follow that will lead them to permanent residency? Problem was the document's 13 pages long and that is not efficient. And there's no way I'm going to get a client to fill that out. And there's no way a client is going to sit down with an admin assistant and fill that out and that not be a waste of time. So I tried to figure out what I could do about it. And I ended up deciding to put it into after pattern and have it so the questions populated based on the answers. That way I didn't have to write skip this or you know try to direct them in a way that gets confusing. And it became a less than 10 minute quiz that fills up that 13 page packet, but the best part is at the end, it fills in these check marks for different areas of immigration that they're eligible for based on the answers that they've given me. It also flags if there's going to be any potential problems. And then it'll also tell me to look further to see if they're eligible for a waiver. Wow. And with that, I've been able to screen people so much faster. And honestly, being able to offer a quick 15-minute phone call for free instead of them hesitating to pay for an hour of my time, I think it's a really good way to also give back to that community that needs mm. to be careful where they spend their money. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Well, seriously, you sound like a superwoman. So <laughs> you have the air about you that sometimes you don't feel like you are a superwoman, which it just ingratiates you even more. But 
you're a superwoman and I know that you own it when you need to. So I just want to really say you're very impressive and amazing. <laughs> I appreciate your time today. If people want to find friend or follow you, how can they reach out? Legally dash mom? Underscore. It's legally underscore mommed. M-O-M-M-E-D. Like a play on legally blonde. I had to. <laughs> My office is pink and gold, so. Of course it is. Same thing on Twitter, same thing on Instagram, same thing on Clubhouse. Facebook, you can find me under Kimberly Felton. I'm pretty easy to find. Same thing on LinkedIn. And then the name of my firm is Onward Immigration, and it will always lead back to me. And then there's innovation litigation for people who need help with streamlining. I think that's great. That's awesome. I'm so glad you took the time from practicing law, helping other lawyers, helping your clients, raising your kids and taking care of your house and husband. And I'm sure he's helpful too. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Without him, this would not be possible. To be able yeah, to- I read a couple of your writings. You have said he has been very supportive and an important part of your success. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate having a partner like that. It's essential, honestly. And I appreciate that a lot of women don't have that. So whenever I get the chance to give him credit where it's due, absolutely. I mean, we kind of reversed roles. You know, he he's deployed before, been in the military. So my support went then and then he's given it back to me now. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Kim. Totally appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. You're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. Sadly, we've reached the end of another great episode of New Solo. If you like what you've heard today, please tell your friends about New Solo. Give us a good rating. Actually, I want to ask everyone to please go on iTunes and give us a good rating. I don't have that many on there because I'm not very good at asking for that. But if you would take the time to do that, I'd really appreciate it. That'd be great. It helps other people find the podcast too. So we'll see you next time on another episode of New Solo. I've been running from nine to five, been biting my tongue for all this time, won't let anyone cut me short, I was thinking this was the way to go, and you put up your puppet show, I say cheers to life, just leave me alone, I'm running the show. Workers' Comp Matters is a podcast dedicated to exploring the laws, the landmark cases, and the true stories that define our workers' compensation system. I'm Judd Pierce, and together with Alan Pierce, we host a different guest each month as we bring to life this diverse area of the law. Join us on Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network.